Let me invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 4 to the passage our friend Sarah so graciously read for us a few moments ago. Mark chapter 4. We continue our journey through this book, and as you can see, we're picking up the pace a little bit, covering a little more ground uh, tonight than what we have in previous weeks. But Mark chapter 4, looking at a phenomenal passage that at first glance, there's some perplexity to it, but ultimately is a very challenging and is very enriching uh, chapter about how God speaks to us through his word, ultimately through his son, Jesus. I'm sure you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. We talk about it a pretty good bit over the course of our time as a, as a family of faith. But you know that, that that series is about seven stories. And the first book in the storyline of The Chronicles of Narnia is called The Magician's Nephew. And in that book is where Lewis kind of lays out the mythology of Narnia and how Narnia came into being. This, this fictional world that he created where animals talk and all kinds of fun things happen. And, and it's an allegory of the Christian faith, of course. And so Lewis just weaves the themes of the gospel all throughout it. Well, starting in The Magician's Nephew, uh, with The Magician's Nephew, Lewis uh, shows how Aslan, the Christ figure in that story, uh, sings Narnia into existence. He, he sings it into being, and it's a phenomenal description. But as we think about, and as he thinks about that picture of, of Aslan singing Narnia into existence, there was one character that he talks about named Uncle Andrew. And Uncle Andrew didn't hear Aslan's song. It didn't sound too pleasant to him. It sounded more like a snarl. I don't know why he would name that character Andrew. I think Andrew's a good name. He could have, he could have found a different character to kind of paint in that light. But, but this, is what he, this is how he describes um, Andrew's experience with uh, Aslan's song. He says, you know, when the great moment came and the beast spoke... Andrew missed the whole point for a rather interesting reason. When the lion had first begun singing, long ago when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, as he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make himself believe that it wasn't singing and never had been, never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might in a zoo in his own world. Of course, it can't, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon heard anything else, even he soon, I'm sorry, soon he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia awake, referring to life and this redemptive word, Uncle Andrew didn't hear any of it. He heard only a snarl. And when the beasts spoke in answer, he heard only barkings, growlings, bayings, and howlings. It's an interesting description reminding us of, of, of course, the parallels with how, what God has done for the world that we live in. There's, you just consider how Aslan sings Narnia into existence, and I can't help but think about Paul's words in Romans chapter 1 where 
we are told that God spoke the world into existence and in so doing, he has revealed or he has disclosed things about himself in the created order. Romans chapter one says that his God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we are ultimately without excuse when it comes to knowing that God exists. And so we know that God has spoken the world into being and we know when we pay attention to what creation is projecting about the glory and the goodness and the power of God, it should tune us into the fact that God is real, that God exists. We should learn that God is a speaking God. But not only does God speak to us through creation, which is phenomenal to know that you can go for a hike and listen to creation's song, call attention to the glory of your creator. That's a phenomenal thing. But even more than that, God went further. He didn't just leave it up to the creation to disclose who he is because creation cannot communicate everything there is to know about God. There are other aspects of who God is that we need him to disclose through another channel, through another medium. And this is what he began to do through the holy writings of Scripture. The, the Old Testament in particular, God began to disclose himself to his people, revealing that he is a speaking God who wants to be known. And as the history of Israel would unfold, as God would do miraculous things in their midst and he would speak to them through the law and through the writings of the prophets ultimately it moved to this moment where God's ultimate form of communication would step into the world when the person of Jesus Christ would step onto the scene in Galilee and God's ultimate self-disclosure his ultimate speaking would occur through the person of Jesus this is what the writer of Hebrews chapter 1 tells us when when we read in that passage long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created see God is a speaking God and that's a beautiful thing for you and I to to grab hold of tonight because it reminds us that if he is a speaking God it reminds us that he is a relational God he wants to be known by his people, so he speaks to us. He discloses himself to us. There's a reality that I, can, I could prevent myself from being known by every person in this room. I could keep myself from being known. All I would have to do is stay silent. All I would have to do is keep quiet, never talk to you, never engage you, and none of you would know anything about who I am. All you'd be left up for is to speculate and to guess. But if I loved you and if I wanted a relationship with you, it would require me to disclose something about me. It would require me speaking to you and engaging in a relationship that is real and vibrant, one that is contingent upon communication. So we hold on to that when we step into Mark chapter 4 because this chapter is focusing on how you and I communicate with God, how it is we hear his voice coming to us specifically through the person of his son, Jesus. It's a phenomenal text. When you read verse 1 all the way down to verse 25, that's the unit we're going to be looking at today. You, it, it, there's some perplexing pieces, and we'll unravel some of it tonight, but the overarching theme of this passage concerns how God speaks to us through Jesus. And what God speaks to us through Jesus is something our hearts need to grab hold of. You see, the big idea that runs from verse 1 all the way down to 25 is that this person, Jesus, is unlike any other person that has ever walked the planet. That Jesus is this person who simultaneously reveals and conceals the kingdom of God. 
Now, I know that's a big thought. That's a big sentence. But Jesus simultaneously reveals and conceals the kingdom of God. And this is how he does it. When you look at this passage, we, we're tempted as we see the scene coming together where Jesus is teaching beside the sea and a very large crowd is gathered about him and so that they might hear him. And, and it's probably tempting for many people who are sitting in the crowd to look at Jesus and to listen to Jesus and to draw the same conclusion that Uncle Andrew drew about Aslan. To hear his voice, to hear his teaching and then say, well, he's only a lion. Or to say of Jesus, he's only a man. I know who Jesus' mom is. I know who his earthly brothers are. I know who his family heritage comes from. I know that he's from Nazareth. I know these earthly things about Jesus. So there's a temptation for people to view Jesus as though he's only a man. And if he's only viewed as a man, then we're not going to take his words as seriously as we ought. We're not going to look for the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus because we're only looking at his humanity. But one of the ways in which Jesus simultaneously reveals and conceals the kingdom of God is that Jesus, uh, Mark cues us into the fact that Jesus is more than a man, and he does so in this passage. He shows us that Jesus is more than a man. He is, in fact, the God-man. And he shows this to us in a couple of ways that are kind of subtle but are very, very significant in my opinion, one of which is found in verse 1. You have this awkward phrase in verse 1 where it says, and a very loud crowd gathered about Jesus so that he got into a boat, and here's the line, and it says, your translation probably says something like this, and Jesus sat in it on the sea referring to the boat. And so the English translators of that verse kind of iron out the awkwardness of that phrase. Quite literally, what is written in that verse is that Jesus got in the boat and he sat on the sea. Now, you read that originally, and you might think, well, Mark just, he messed up. He misquoted, or he, he wrote the wrong construction. Maybe he wasn't, very, he wasn't paying attention to his syntax, but I don't think that's what's happening. I think Mark knew exactly what he was doing, and I think Mark was drawing an allusion to who Jesus is by saying that Jesus sat on the sea. He's echoing the language that is found in Psalm chapter 29, verse 10, where we're told that the Lord sits enthroned on the sea. Or he sits enthroned on the flood. He sits enthroned over the waters. This is who God is. And so Mark's given us a subtle allusion to that Jesus, the words that you're hearing him speak in this moment, they're not coming from a mere man. They're coming from the God man. This is God in the flesh. It's a subtle indicator there. But then you see a more forthright, a more straightforward uh, declaration of Jesus' divinity when you drop down all the way to verse 21. Because there you find another awkward phrase where it says in verse 21, it, it, Mark refers to this lamp. And Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Referring to this lamp. Now, in that translation, it gives the impression that the lamp is an object that is acted upon. Someone brings a lamp in and puts it on the table so that it can give light. But again, it's an awkward construction in the original language that shouldn't have been ironed out. It shouldn't say, is a lamp brought in for this purpose as though the lamp is the object. In that verse, the lamp is actually a subject. The lamp has come. And the lamp has come for a reason. It's what's called personification. And the reason why the lamp is personified in that moment is because that lamp is a reference to God himself. All throughout the Old Testament, 
the lamp is used as a metaphor for the presence and the power and the illumination of God. I'll give you a couple of examples of that, one of which is found in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 29, where, where David says in that moment, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Lamp is a metaphor for God in that moment. I think that's what Mark is cueing us, or Jesus in verse 21 is cueing us into. But then again, when you drop all the way, you turn to a passage like 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 19, you see a very similar illusion there where lamp is used for a metaphor for this divine Messiah who will come and establish his rule and his reign that will last forever, something that no mere human could do. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 19, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant since he promised to give a lamp to him. And to his sons forever, this eternal dynamic, this lamp who would be given to provide something that could last forever. And again, I believe that is a reference to Jesus' divinity. His, he's a Messiah, but as the Messiah, he's not a mere human. He is the God-man. And so we think about this tonight. Jesus simultaneously reveals and conceals the kingdom of God in his person because on one hand, he is fully human. And if we only look at him as though he is fully human, the kingdom of God will be concealed from us. But if we press in, if we begin to look at Jesus and listen to what he's saying in this passage, as well as throughout the gospels, we begin to discover more dynamics to who Jesus is, that yes, his divine nature is concealed in his humanity, but if we think about it, that's a really, really good thing for you and me. It's a good thing that Jesus concealed his divinity with his humanity, and here's why. In John chapter 18, there's a moment when Jesus is about to be arrested, and so this full cohort of soldiers, a lot of soldiers, fully trained, armed at the hilt, come to arrest Jesus and to take him to the cross. And when they step into the garden to, to arrest him, they ask for Jesus of Nazareth, trying to put the accent on his humanity. That's more tameable. That's more manageable. That's not as intimidating. Where is Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who comes from that podunk town? Certainly not the king in the kingdom of God. It was that type of description. And then, what does Jesus say? Jesus says in response, he stands up and he says, I am he. And he employs the same name that God uses in Exodus chapter 3 when he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And when he employs that name, what happens is Jesus just pulls back the, the veil of his humanity just for a moment, giving them a glimpse of his glory, giving him a glimpse of his divinity. And what happened? Everyone fell flat. They couldn't handle it. Everyone fell on their faces in, the, in that moment. They could not handle the full disclosure of Jesus' deity. So it is a good thing that Jesus simultaneously reveals and conceals the kingdom of God through his person, through who he is, fully human and fully God. In other words, if Jesus had not come, had not taken on flesh and stepped into the world, we would have been crushed under the weight of his glory. The heat of his holiness would have burnt us up. But since Jesus concealed himself in humanity, he was able to step in a more recognizable, a more manageable fashion. We have the mediation of Jesus able to interact with him. And through that, we're able to find what's called the kingdom of God. Now, when I say that Jesus simultaneously reveals and conceals the kingdom of God, understand that I'm not talking about a place. I'm not talking about a palace. I'm talking about something that's better translated kingship of God. 
We're talking about the redemption of God. We're talking about the reign of God. We're not talking about a place when we talk about God's kingdom. We're talking about a pulse, a way of life, a culture, so to speak. A culture of redemption that is centered on who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And so in this moment, Jesus' deity surfaces in these ways. We, we begin to discover that in his person, he reveals and conceals aspects of the kingdom of God. And now you think about that for a moment and you wonder, well, what's the relevancy for that in me and my faith and my life? Well, the relevancy is to ultimately leave your heart in awe of who Jesus is. You see, not everything when it comes to application and relevancy is about you. Aspects of application and relevancy is about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Is our heart warming up to, his, to who he is and his beauty and his, the wonder of his person so that we fall in love with a person, so that we trust a person, so that we're in relationship with a person, so that we're listening to a person? We need to know who it is we're listening to. And so when we listen to Jesus or talk to Jesus, we're listening to someone who is fully human and fully divine. And can you imagine the awe that that when, when people begin to grip this in the first century, when they begin to hear and put some of the pieces together about who this Jesus is, can you imagine some of the conversations that they may have had? Could you imagine Jesus answering some of the questions that people may have asked him growing up? Imagine somebody walking up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, how old are you? And then Jesus looks back and he responds, well, that's a tough one. On my mama's side, I'm 12. But on my daddy's side, I'm eternal. On my mama's side, I, I get hungry. But on my daddy's side, I'm the bread of life. On my mama's side, I get thirsty. But on my daddy's side, I'm the fountain of living waters. On my mama's side, I cried the day Lazarus died. But on my daddy's side, I spoke a word and he stepped out of his tomb. On my mama's side, I was crucified on the cross. I became mortal and killable. But on my daddy's side, I stepped out of the grave. I rose from death. And in so doing, I have secured the arrival of the kingdom of God through who I am and what I have accomplished in this world. The point of that dynamic as we think about that is to leave us in awe so that our hearts begin to want to listen to this Jesus and love this Jesus and know who this Jesus is. The one who simultaneously reveals and conceals the kingdom of God through his person. But not only do we see it through his person, you see it in this chapter as you think about his parables. And this is where the text gets a little more, uh, believe it or not, even maybe a little more complicated. Because in verse 2, Jesus talks about how he was teaching them many things in parables. And he uses that descriptor and that form is what he's teaching in. Now, parables are very common. Jesus often taught with parables. And the, usually the main theme of his parabolic teaching concerned the kingdom of God, concerned redemption, God's reign and rule over his people and ultimately over the new heavens and the new earth and how it comes in and how it's going to grow and how it's going to be one day and so his parables focus heavily on the kingdom of God. And, and now when you think about parables, don't think that Jesus invented a new way of teaching or a new way of, of doing things. Parables were common. They were present in the Old Testament. Other Jewish rabbis taught in parables. That's not really the point that Jesus uses a familiar form. The point is what Jesus is saying with his parables. He's teaching us about the kingdom of God. And so he uses parables to do so. And his parables are fascinating where he takes these ordinary objects these ordinary, familiar, everyday objects, something like a seed and soil, 
Something like agriculture, which was very common in the first century. And he uses these ordinary things to communicate extraordinary realities. This is the beauty of Jesus' parables. Ordinary things communicating extraordinary realities. And when you read through what Jesus says about parables in this passage, and even the way he uses this particular parable, he reminds us that the meaning of the parables are not self-evident. You see, there are some students of the Bible who who think that every parable is self-evident. You should automatically know what every parable means, that its understanding is right there on the surface. Anybody can get it. But Jesus says, no, that's not necessarily the case. The meaning of the parables are not self-evident. Jesus reveals and conceals the kingdom of God through the form of these parables. This means that after he delivered the parable in verses 1 through 9, This means verse 10 is where everything really happens. Because in verse 10, that's where he begins to explain what he just said. But notice who he's explaining it to. He's not explaining it to the crowd that was gathered at the sea. The scene has changed. Jesus is now alone with his disciples and a few others who stuck around. And it is in that setting where Jesus communicates the meaning of the parable. He reveals the kingdom of God from the parable to those who are in fellowship with him. Those who've come near, not necessarily to the crowds that have gone home and they've went about their business. He's revealing the meaning of his parable to those who who heard what Jesus said and they've pressed in to learn more. Rather than pushing back in their confusion, they've pressed in seeking clarification, seeking understanding, and Jesus graciously gives it to them. He's giving, he's revealing his kingdom to those who are in fellowship with him, to those who've drawn near to him. And this is what he's doing in verse 10. It says, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Everything's still a little perplexing. And and so he's revealing this dynamic. And there's a sense in which Jesus is doing for his disciples in this moment what the Holy Spirit does for each one of us today. As Jesus, his disciples have drawn near and he's giving them understanding of the kingdom of God, there's a sense in which he's doing for them exactly what the Holy Spirit does for us. In other words, if you pick up the Bible and you plan to read it, you need the Holy Spirit to understand it. Now, you may come to some general understanding of what the Bible says about different things, but in order for the seed of the word that is the scriptures to take root in your heart and to produce fruit, you need the person of the Holy Spirit to bring the saving significance of the scriptures to life in you. This is why I never read the Bible without asking, God, I I don't understand this. I need your help. Would you be with me? Would you speak to me? This is why Paul would put the Spirit in conjunction with the Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, because you need both. You need the Word and the Spirit. You cannot understand the saving significance that is found in the person of Jesus and the kingdom of God without both. And so this is what Jesus is giving us a glimpse of in this moment. He's he's revealing these things to those who've drawn near. But then you shift down to verse 12, and you find something kind of kind of challenging. Verse 12 is admittedly the hardest, perhaps the hardest passage, the hardest verse to understand in all of the Bible. I mean, all of the New Testament. Listen to what he says here. He says, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. It's a, it's a tough passage. It sounds like Jesus is saying that he doesn't want some people to turn and be forgiven. 
It's exactly what it sounds like it's saying. And there's really no dancing around the original language. That's what it says in the original language. So it leaves you scratching your head. You're wondering, well, what, what, what's going on with this, with this verse? And we want to stub our toe on this type of passage. But again, we need to think well about this stuff. Understand that when Jesus says these words, he's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 6, and he's drawing an analogy between his ministry in Galilee with Isaiah's ministry back in the day. Isaiah was a prophet of God who spoke on God's behalf, but when God called him into the ministry and sent him to do so, God actually tells Isaiah, now, when you go forth and you begin to tell people what I'm telling you, they're not going to listen. They're going to hear you, but they're not going to understand you. They're going to see what you're saying, but they're not going to perceive it in a life-changing way. And so Jesus quotes this in this moment, I think, to encourage those who've drawn near with the perplexity of recognizing, well, we see beauty in you, Jesus. Why don't other people see beauty in you? And so he quotes this passage and he's saying, well, this is in part an explanation for why some respond positively and some respond negatively to who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. There was a lot of people by the sea that day, many of them left, and that caused the disciples perhaps to scratch their heads. Well, what's their problem? Don't they know who you are? Don't they want to come near to you? You see, it's kind of like looking at Jesus. It's kind of like looking at a stained glass mirror from the outside. A stained glass window, sorry, may look dull and lifeless. But when you step on the inside and you begin to view it from within, you see its beauty. You see its wonder. You see its light. Well, this is a very similar dynamic of what happens with those of us who are following Jesus. On the outside, Jesus looks, his beauty can escape us. It can elude us. But when we step into fellowship with him, when we respond positively to what he's saying and what he's doing, suddenly we find Jesus attractive and beautiful, and we want to know more about Jesus. We want to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And so the tables turn a little bit when you're viewing Jesus as an outsider or you're viewing Jesus as an insider. And so Jesus, I think, quotes this to give a little hint as to know you shouldn't be surprised by the fact that many people turn and walk away from Jesus. This has been happening all throughout the Gospel of Mark. Some people have responded positively. Others haven't. But then... You read that verse, and I know some of your minds are going in this direction because that's where my mind went as I was meditating on this passage over, the, over this past week, really. And you know that this passage is really kind of moving towards that mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And you begin to think through some of those dynamics. And we want to kind of sometimes get hung up on verse 12 and, and, and become infatuated with the mystery that is inherent to what Jesus is saying there that we forget or we overlook the clear things that Jesus says later in this passage. One of the unique things about Mark chapter 4 is that Jesus says that, but at the same time, he holds people accountable for how they hear and respond to what he's saying and doing. Because later he says, pay attention to what you hear. And two other times he commands people, hear, listen, pay attention. So there's human culpability there as well as divine sovereignty kind of conveyed in verse 12. And they're held there in tension. They're held there in balance. It's a similar frustration you may find when you read other passages of the Bible. Even coming from the lips of Jesus in Mark chapter 14 verse 21. Listen to this tension. It says on the one hand the son of man must be betrayed as it is written. That's divine sovereignty, right? That's purpose, that's, that's ordination, that's plan. That is, the Son of Man must be betrayed. But then look at the very next phrase. 
In the very next phrase, human culpability is brought in to balance it. But woe to that man through whom he is betrayed. So which is it? Does Jesus have to die or, and that lets us all off the hook? Or does he have to die and we're culpable for his death? Well, the answer is yes. The answer is both. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility held in tension. And if you want me to resolve that tension for you, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. It's a similar tension. It's a similar balance that exists in the book of Exodus. If you've ever read through the story of Exodus, you come to, there's a main character there named Pharaoh. And we're told about Pharaoh's hardness of heart. Ten times it refers to Pharaoh's hardness of heart. Five of those times, his hard-heartedness is attributed to God's will, God's purpose, God's sovereignty. But equally balanced, five times, his hardness of heart is referred to as his own choice, his own response. Held in perfect balance, symmetry, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, the reconciliation of which escapes the roof of our reason. It's too much for our minds to handle. And we need to be careful that we don't become so infatuated with that which is mysterious in the scriptures that we forget and we overlook that which is clear. Because if we become infatuated with that which is mysterious and we're not responding to what is clear, we may become fun theologians, but we'll never become saints. We'll never become holy men and women of Jesus who are following Jesus, relating Jesus, listening to Jesus, and responding to Jesus. This was a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer's assessment when he was pointing out this tension and he was encouraging people like us not to get hung up on the mysterious elements but to focus on what is clear. He says, you know, God will not hold us responsible to understand the mysteries of election, predestination, and the divine sovereignty. He says the best and safest way to deal with these truths is to raise our eyes to God and in deepest reverence say, O Lord, you know. Those things belong to the deep and mysterious Profound of God's omniscience. Prying into them may make us theologians, but they will never make us saints. And so if you're tempted to stub your toe on verse 12 so that you don't move down to what Jesus says is absolutely clear, that you should pay attention to how you hear his word, the message you receive about his kingdom, let me encourage you to to move on. See, verse 12 is one of those verses that should humble us, but it should not occupy us. We should not obsess over it because if we do, we may miss that which is clear. We may miss Jesus commanding us, pay attention to what you hear because what you hear and how you hear matters. And so Jesus then moves into verse 13 and he says, he says to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand this parable? And then he begins to explain. He begins to bring clarity. And here are some things that are, that are crystal clear from this chapter. Verse 14, the sower, which is the Savior, Jesus, who's been walking throughout Galilee, indiscriminately sowing the word or sowing the seed. We discover there that the, the seed is the word. That whatever it is that we're hearing, this word, it, it, that, that's the seed that is being sown. And Jesus is sowing it widely. Anyone and everyone who comes in his vicinity is hearing the word. Now the question then becomes, what is the word? Well, we kind of know already. Earlier in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we are told that when Jesus stepped onto the scene in Galilee, he proclaimed the gospel of God. He began to speak on God's behalf, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I think most immediately the word that is being sown in this moment is the gospel of God's kingdom. 
It's the good news that redemption has broken into the world. It's the good news that salvation has come in the person of Jesus. It has broken into the world. That is good news. That's the word Jesus is communicating. That's the word Jesus wants us to hear. But not only is it the dynamic that the kingdom of God has broken into the world, it's the dynamic that the kingdom of God is going to break out all across the world. That the seed of the gospel, it's come into the world, and just as a seed goes underneath the surface and is broken up, eventually it breaks through. It breaks out of the ground, and it produces fruit. And so the good news, the word that we are to hear concerns the gospel of God's kingdom that is broken in and that is breaking out. And this is an encouraging word to the disciples in that moment, and it's an encouraging word to you and I today because it seems to them that the kingdom of God isn't really having much of an effect because the disciples, those who are following Jesus, are in the minority. And we sit here today in 21st century Seattle, and we want to we shout loudly about the power of the gospel and the, and the effectiveness of the kingdom of God and how wonderful and beautiful it is. And, and rightly so, we want to call attention to it. But when it doesn't seem to be having the effect that we think it should, the temptation is to lose faith in it. The temptation is to shrink back from the word, the gospel of the kingdom of God, and not talk about it anymore because nobody wants to believe it. Nobody thinks Jesus is beautiful. Nobody trusts in the gospel. And so since we're in the minority, there's a temptation to lose confidence in the gospel, but this parable exists to remind us that we don't have to. In fact, if you and I are not careful, we're going to impose upon this parable an element of time that is not present in this parable. Time is not present here. And so the reality that the kingdom of God has broken into the world and that is breaking out across the world, we need to understand that elsewhere when Jesus describes the growth of the kingdom, the way that it happens is through a gradual growth, a progressive growth. But we're so wired as Americans to want to be dramatic that we think anything that happens under the rubric of the kingdom of God should be flashy and brilliant and glorious. But that's not necessarily how the kingdom of God breaks out in the world it is. The kingdom of God moves more at a gradual rate. The kingdom of God moves through the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary experiences with the gospel. And as we learn to live into the ordinary Life suddenly takes on an extraordinary fill, and we begin to see the fruit of the gospel sprouting up here and there in us, not because we're pursuing glorious, powerful manifestations, but because we're resting in what the kingdom of God really is, and the kingdom of God is compared to a seed, something that is very, very ordinary, but it is something that gives birth to some extraordinary, and so we are encouraged by this parable, at least we should be encouraged by this parable, that the kingdom of God is going to break out all across the world. It's going to happen. Jesus is going to settle his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth one day. And when that happens, there will be a group of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue on the planet will be represented there. And so if you are discouraged right now, wondering, well, is the gospel powerful? Is the kingdom of God really taking an effect in people's lives? Let me assure you that it is because that's what the gospel does. But let me also encourage you to live with patience, to live with endurance, to not be swept up in dramatic elements of the Christian faith. Give yourself to the ordinary rhythms of grace and let Jesus do his thing. Let Jesus produce his fruit. Let Jesus build his his kingdom. 
So if you're looking around and you're wondering, well, how do I know if the kingdom of God is broken in to my sphere, into my life? How do I know if the kingdom of God is breaking out in my life and, and around me, even in the ordinary things? Well, this is how you would know. If the, kingdom, if the word concerns the gospel of the kingdom of God, then the kingdom of God is present. We can find it wherever the gospel of God is prized. The kingdom of God is present wherever the gospel is prized. Meaning, do you love Jesus? Do you love what he did for you? Do you love the promises he's made to you and the promises he will keep for you? If you love that, the kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is breaking through and the kingdom of God is breaking out. It's a phenomenal thing to know that the kingdom of God is present wherever the gospel is prized because it helps give clarity to our eyes as we're tempted to look in so many other directions to see the kingdom of God. But if the kingdom of God is tied to the gospel, if it's tied to the word, if it's tied to that seed, if, then the kingdom of God is present only where the gospel of God is prized. And then all of a sudden, that begun, then Jesus turns the corner after clarifying that in verse 15, and he, draws, he explains the soils that he refers to earlier. And he points out how these parables actually help us see what prohibits people from prizing the gospel. What types of things prohibit people from prizing Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection? And what's interesting is as Jesus explains this parable, understand that the problem doesn't rest with the gospel. And the problem doesn't rest with the sower or the savior. He's sowing indiscriminately. He's, He's sowing the word everywhere he goes. The problem's not with him and the problem is not with the gospel. Notice where Jesus puts the problem. The problem rests within the human heart. And he begins to explain how these four soils are profiles of the human heart, giving us four. And I want us to look at this as though we're looking into a mirror and see if any of these connect with where our hearts are in this moment. And then let's press into Jesus to change anything that may need to be changed. The first profile is one is found in verse 15. Look what he says there. He says, and these, the ones, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And he's referring to this, this path. Uh, usually this is the path that those who are sowing seed would walk. And they would walk so frequently upon the same path that they would pound the ground so hard that it would become very, very tough. And seed would fall along this hard surface. And when it did, birds could see that seed easily swoop in and take it immediately. There was no chance. It was very quick thing. So what you might describe here is a profile of what might be called a busy heart. You see, there are some of our hearts that are too busy to recognize when the thief has come or to recognize that the thief is coming. It's not unlike how my son Asher. I love the fact that Jesus actually drew the analogy between birds earlier and Satan here. Because I think about the crows that tempted my son out into the street one day. And they led him out in the middle of the street because I was distracted, because I was too busy, because I was focusing on something else. Fortunately, we were able to get Asher and pull him to safety. But that's the image here, this idea of having a busy or a distracted heart, one that is, is so, so focused on other things, we basically beat the ground of our own lives, just asphalt hard with our frenetic feet. And so this is a warning to anyone who is on the go. Anyone whose life is so busy, they have no time to contemplate that which they hear about Jesus. No time to harbor the things that they hear about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. 
Some of you are going to be tempted in this direction tonight because you're going to leave here. You're going to immediately turn on the television or you're going to immediately step up the video game. You're going to do something that's going to keep you from harboring that which you've heard about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And it's possible that the thief can come in and snatch that seed right from you because your heart is too busy. So that's one particular profile. But then you move into verse 16, and we get another one there. He says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the one who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. You might describe this as a shallow heart. This describes the person who might be a spiritual sensi. Somebody who has a lot of enthusiasm about various things, but their faith usually resembles that of a firecracker, meaning it only exists on special occasions. Trusting in Jesus at the conference, trusting in Jesus at the, at the concert by a particular band, or trusting in Jesus at a particular event or a particular moment. Firecrackers that are used on special occasions. Jesus is saying those types of hearts are shallow. And so when the heat is turned up and endurance is required, it easily pushes the, the seed of the gospel out of their lives. I'm reminded of a single man I have discipled, and he loved Jesus while he had a girlfriend. But the moment that girl cut ties with him, so did his faith. His roots were too shallow. His faith was placed in his circumstance, not in his Savior, and that's a huge problem. There's enthusiasm in some of our lives, but there's no endurance, and that's a huge problem. Because what happens is if you step into a relationship with Jesus and you're really enthusiastic, if you're not careful, you're going to have an averse reaction when things change and life does not begin to go well for you. It's possible for your enthusiasm that, enthusiasm that starts positively for it to flip and become a negative and so as, as frustrated or as excited as you were about Jesus in the beginning is how much you hate Jesus when things change. Helmut Thielicke, a German theologian, actually draws this out in a, in a description that I found very, very helpful as I was meditating uh, on this dynamic. And this is what he says, just cautioning us. He says, there's nothing more cheering than transformed Christian people, and there's nothing more disintegrating than people who have been merely brushed by Christianity. People who have been sown with a thousand seeds, but in whose lives there is no depth and no rootage. Therefore, they fall when the first whirlwind comes along. It is the half-Christians who always flop in the face of the first catastrophe that happens. Because their dry intellectuality and their superficial emotionalism do not stand the test. So even that which they think they have is taken away from them. Some of the most vehement voices speaking out against the Christian faith are those marked out by this kind of soil. He says, this is the wood from which the anti-Christians, too, are cut. They are almost always former half-Christians. A person who lets Jesus only halfway into his heart is far poorer than a 100% worldling or non-believer. He does not get the peace that passes all understanding, and he also loses the world's peace because his naivety has been taken from him as well. In other words, you can move from enthusiasm to begrudging very quickly. So we want to be very, very sensitive to what Jesus is saying here. We want to be very sensitive to the warnings he is putting before us, the warnings of a busy heart, the warnings of a shallow heart, but then there's also the big warning of a divided heart. You see this in verse 18. It says, and others are the ones sown among thorns, those 
are those, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. In other words, these are people whose hearts are divided. They want to follow Jesus, but they also love a lot of earthly infatuations, and because they're obsessed with so many earthly infatuations, eventually they will begin to crowd out the voice of Jesus. They will begin to shield them from the beauty of Jesus. This is why Jesus would say in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is what went down in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 with a guy named Demas, one of Paul's friends. He said, Demas was in love with this present world, and because of that, he deserted the faith. So he's telling us to beware the intoxicating allure of earthly security and of earthly infatuations. He says, those things can pull your heart away from Jesus. Those, that is the type of soil that does not produce the fruit of the kingdom of God. So there's a warning, and then he moves into verse 20, and he gives us this picture of a captivated heart. And verse 20 is where we want to be. This is where we want to land. He says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. They hear it and harbor it, and they bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. This is the picture of a captivated heart. This is a picture of someone who's, who's heard the gospel, and they're not just letting it leave them quickly. They're not distracted from it. This is a, someone who's heard the gospel and they've harbored it deeply into their lives. This is a person who's heard the gospel and their heart is united around who Jesus is so that their heart has become captivated. So much so that they are about to live out the effect the gospel is having on their lives. The gospel is taking root and it is producing fruit in them. And you get a picture here of what it means to be Good soil. A person is good soil not because they are inherently good. Good soil is inherently responsive. The gospel comes in and we respond to what the gospel is. We respond to what Jesus is saying. And all of a sudden, discipleship ceases to be an education for us, but discipleship becomes obedience for us. You see, the reason why we come together on a Sunday is and we study the scriptures like we do on a Sunday night isn't for our education. It's for our obedience. Because the goal of the Christian life is not to become educated about who Jesus is and about what Jesus is about. The goal of the Christian life is obedience. It is to follow Jesus and bear fruit in the process. This is what the captivated heart does. If all we were about was education, then this is the only thing we would do in the life of our church. We would not have missional communities. We would not have any other connecting point outside of this space we just come together and study the bible and go about our days with our heads full of knowledge but our hearts none the better but since we're focusing on obedient oriented dis discipleship we do all the things that we do hoping that our hearts are captivated by the person of jesus captivated by the teaching of jesus captivated by the work of jesus who lived and died and rose again for our salvation now, as you look into that passage and you consider yourself in light of these four soils, I don't know what, what is resonating with you right now. Maybe your heart is busy. Maybe your heart right now is shallow. Maybe your heart is divided. But my prayer is that each and every heart in this space will be found captivated. And so if you're in this moment where you feel like your heart is busy, shallow, or divided, then let Jesus till that soil. Let him break it up. Confess that. Repent that. And repent of that. And ask Jesus to help you through it. Say, Jesus, heal my heart. Jesus, make me responsive. Jesus, capture my heart. Captivate me. This is what we pray. This is what we go after. Jesus, till up 
the bad soil of our hearts and let good soil be put in its place. Captivate me day by day with your grace. That's the prayer of the ordinary disciple's life. Let me pray for us and then we will proceed. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we consider these words, Lord, let us be careful how we hear. Let us pay attention to what you are saying and what you are doing. I pray, Jesus, that you would break up any bad soil that may exist in us right now and and you would captivate us once again by the gospel of your grace, by the beauty of your kingdom. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do this for us, that you would work this within us, and that you would produce fruit through us all in Jesus' name. Amen.